Het regent Piperstellen, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is a Flemish expression for it's raining pipe handles, uh, equivalent to our raining cats and dogs, I guess, uh, in, in honor of the weather forecast in the Arden Forest this week. I'm Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Always looking forward to spa, especially when the weather's a bit iffy. Yes, yes, indeed. Speaking of iffy weather, Danny O'Dwyer is out this week in the somewhat, I don't know, rainy, I guess, Emerald Isles. Uh, So he'll be joining us uh, next week. Uh, If you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you're new to Formula One itself, uh, we've got an episode just for you. Episode 137 is our preseason primer that assumes no prior F1 knowledge and how uh, explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you want to get up to speed, so to speak, on this weird sport, you can go back and listen to episode 137. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons uh, that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, uh, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shift F1 or click the link in the show notes. In fact, we had one of our Patreon episodes go free uh, during the uh, the summer break, the W Series 101, which we got a lot of uh, good responses from. Um, I uh, we, we missed you on that one, Rob. Oh, I always hate missing one. Yeah, but we did get you for Speed Racer, uh, which is <laughs> this month's uh, patron exclusive, um, which, oh my God, I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, that was that was an exquisite fever dream. Uh, but uh, special thanks goes to uh, our title sponsors on Patreon. This month, we have Gnarly Goat, Tractor Share, Josh Haynes, David Mull, Simon Villeneuve, our good friend Mo, Drew Stewart, BPM, which this month, month stands for Baron Podcasting Month, which I take personally, uh, Bailey Foote, Abdullah Alfani, Jason, powered by AWS Chadwick. I don't like that one bit. Uh, Abraham Getchell, Joel Roberts, Connor McManners, Sam G, Reagan, Circuit Demon, Choice Stammer, Umberto Roca, Will Rumpf, and Jason Kelly. So, we are back, everyone, from the summer break, heading into uh, a classic F1 race, I would say, in in Spa is what we have there. Uh, but before we get to the track walk, some news. Not a whole lot going on i think we kind of expected some driver announcements in the in the summer break but, i did um, i'm not sure i did uh because okay. like it is such a weird like we've gone over this before it's a weird contract environment like so many teams in this last cycle went to longer term contracts uh that like we don't have enough interesting seats open for a really engaging silly season and it seems very clear that like Mercedes seem bound and determined not to say what their intent is uh, for the end of the season, um, which makes sense, I guess, especially if you're in the middle of this sort of uh, title shootout. Uh, but yeah, it's like it is a game of musical chairs where a bunch of the seats are just filled by people who are not moving. Um, and so it does it does seem like there's a lot of uh, waiting and seeing around the few seats that that are available. Um, I I was expecting there might be a little bit more of like some some hand tipping uh about what teams are planning and i think the closest we came was uh 
Franz Tost. <laughs> it's sounding a really weird note uh, around <laughs> the uh, Alpha Tori uh, lineup. Um, he he's their team principal, right? Yeah, and he's a weird dude. He's a weird dude. He is like in 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 a lot of ways, he's he's an iconic uh, F one team principal. The only thing he cares about is running his team and racing. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and. What he has said is basically that while they're not making official that the Alvatari lineup is uh, standing pat after the season, he doesn't see any alternatives uh, to it. Um, part of it is they are very committed to uh, Sonoda despite the rough season uh, he's had. And Pierre Gasly has had an extraordinary season. Um, it's it's like difficult to say that he doesn't deserve to keep the seat uh, at this point. You know, it's difficult to say he doesn't deserve a better seat. Um, but nevertheless, like it was very funny hearing Tost sort of not quite completely squelching rumors that they might make a change at AlphaTauri, but basically saying they're kind of stuck. And he also didn't sound a particularly uh, confident note for Yuki. Uh, as he said, um, I hope we'll be. I hope we will also be next year. Be with Pierre and Yuki uh, because for Yuki it'll be the second season. He knows the tracks. Uh, but now you must not forget we will go into the second half of the season where Yuki doesn't even know the race tracks. Uh, the idea <laughs> being that the lower the the development circuits that he competed in don't have like American legs of the of the championship. Mm-hmm. So alarmingly. We have seen Sunoda on what is closest to like his home turf, uh, in terms of of tracks. Um, and from after this European leg winds up, it's going to be all new circuits. And uh, Toss does not sound like he's striking a confident note. Do you think he's also maybe tempering expectations? Like, hey, Yuki doesn't even know these, so we expect even more spins in qualifying or whatever that, you know, that could well be. Um, and certainly it is. I think Yuki had a lot of, uh, Sonoda had a lot of hype coming into the season and I'm not sure that served him well either. Cause ultimately he's having a pretty normal rookie season, but against expectations, it looks really bad. Yeah. Uh, also it's gotta be a bummer if you are a Red Bull junior driver and hearing him say like, we don't really see anybody else. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of the future, Japan, where the future lives in the present, uh, is uh, not going to be a racetrack that we race at this year. Uh, the Japanese Grand Prix has been canceled due to COVID concerns uh, in the wake of the Olympics. Um, and so we don't know yet what is going to be filling in. There's some speculation that maybe we'll do a second race in Bahrain. Um which uh, Autosport, Autosport points out if they join Saudi Arabia in Abu Dhabi, that would mean four events in the Middle East in the last part of the season. Uh, but Qatar is also one of the new events on standby. MotoGP races there. Um, but uh, that so that's up in the air. I think Austin was also uh, held up as one possibility. But again, COVID-wise, Austin is not doing too hot. So probably not there. We shall see. Um, and a couple updates from teams on, I guess, parts size, regulation side. Uh, Aston Martin, if you recall, before we went to break, uh, Sebastian Vettel got a second place and then had it stripped from him because uh, that team 
did not um, hold up their end of the regulation, which says that one liter of fuel must be left in your car for inspection. Uh, the FIA was not able to extract one liter of fuel from the car. And so uh, they um, disqualified Sebastian Vettel from the race. Aston Martin said, well, wait a minute. There, there has to be one liter of fuel in there. We just know it. So here, here's our car. Take it apart. See if you can find it. Um, they did not. Rob, what, uh, what happened here? Well, so the thing that Aston Martin claims is that so what their telemetry told them, they can guess pretty accurately how much fuel is burned off during a race. By that math, um, which should check out, they should have had comfortably more than enough uh, than was required for the for for the sample. Uh, the issue was they believed that yeah, with the with a broken fuel pump on board the car, that it was stuck somewhere inside the car, and it just wasn't in the tank where the FIO was trying to access it. However, as they've done further, uh, you know, inspection on the car, it appears, this is according to uh, Aston Martin, that there was a fuel leak uh, as part of the failures within the fuel system. And so, yes, there should have been more fuel in the car, but it probably leaked out uh, over the course of that race. And so yeah, uh, Craig, Craig Scarborough, who does a lot of F1 tech analysis, I think he may have worked for a team uh, at one point in the past, but he he his Twitter account's great. He does a lot of like uh, annotating pictures of the pits and, and technical drawings and stuff. Uh, he says um, on Twitter here, uh, it's not commonly known, but F1 fuel tanks are lightly pressurized. Uh, an air pump inside the tank prevents cavitation inside the lift pumps. It seems a leak inside the Aston's tank, apparently from the pressure relief valve, allowed fuel to escape, thus leaving less than one liter behind. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm disappointed that like it, it, Aston Martin withdrew the appeal uh, because they're you know they basically said we uncovered more information that indicates like we didn't intentionally like we we stayed within our fuel burn uh, limits. Uh, we weren't trying to breach anything, but the thing they're not going to be able to produce is the requisite sample of fuel, and so they decided to drop the appeal, uh, which is unfortunate because it does. This does feel like um, it feels even worse. I think, in my opinion, that like if like if they had gotten the fuel amount wrong um, and they had screwed up, like making sure that sample was available, that is a harsh penalty, but it is a pretty like clear marker that's laid down for all the teams. The fact that a fault caused it to leak out. Um, but it's firmly in the realm of like shit happens on race cars. Um, and it still costs him that podium position. That is, uh, a pretty huge bummer. Um, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, that is a huge bummer. And, uh, it's, it's also frustrating cause like, <laughs> boy, I hope you can fix that. Um, Renault also has some problems maybe well, happening in there. Do they, I can't figure out like. So it was just sort of revealed that some time ago, uh, Renault's chi uh, like director of engine development departed the company by, quote unquote, uh, mutual agreement. Um, and this was basically uh, so, so the guy, Remy, Remy Taffin, uh, was the engine technical director and has been has had that role uh, through much of the turbo hybrid era, which admittedly 
has not been great for Renault Power. Um, he has been in charge of F1's uh, like engine operations, uh, you know, since 2014. Um, but they they were making gains, and this all also comes at a moment when they are bringing a they're des- developing a new power unit for 2022, um, and now their director, uh, their engine director is gone and they're not looking for a direct replacement and are instead planning on reshuffling uh, roles and responsibilities uh, to basically cover his absence. And I can't, you know, I can't help but put this in the context of uh, Cyril Abitable's departure was also a little bit weird and unexpected. The entire switch to the Alpine brand uh, has seemed a bit haphazard. Renault has been on record as saying they expect this thing to uh, be a profit center at some point for the company in the near future and will not be a loss leader, so it needs to stand on its own. And so, like, the fact that this wasn't announced, the fact that they're not announcing, like, hey, here's the new person who's going to oversee, in, like, engine development, the fact that it's just kind of like a um, repl- like a replacement via diffusion... All of this just has my antennae twitching of mm-hmm. like, is this a program that is still being heavily invested in? Or is this kind of the sort of thing you see where they're allowing a little bit of attrition uh, to, you know, in that, you know, immortal phrase, do, make other people do less with more, do more with less um, in his absence. So th- this thing kind of has me a bit concerned. I could see it just being, maybe they're being very cold-blooded. And ultimately, Renault designed bad engines through this period. The fact they've closed the gap at the, you know, at the 11th hour doesn't change the fact that, like, Renault had embarrassing failures uh, as an engine program uh, for the last few years. I could see that that might be the issue, and they just don't want to stick with this guy in the next era, and they don't want to say that. Uh, But I could also see it being a thing where they are no longer going to support this program with the full slate of staff that they've enjoyed in the past. I mean, 2022 is not very far away. No. It's, I got to believe the 2022 upgrade is, is mostly done yeah. in terms of design. And maybe this is, this might be just the, the tail end of all that big shift that Renault was making. Um, because when you think about the 2025 regulations, that is going to be a new engine spec. So maybe get getting your ducks in a row now is the thing to do. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, speaking of team engines, though, what's going on at Ferrari? Yeah, so this is another interesting one. Um, so Ferrari have announced that they're going to uh, bring forward some major engine upgrades later in the season. And the reason they're able to do this is... Uh, Basically, they saved. They didn't debut all new components at the start of the season. You're basically allowed to roll out a new spec for all the components of a power unit uh, once per year. Ferrari stayed with 2020 spec with a lot of stuff, uh, and so they're able to bring parts out uh, that have been developed later in the season. Uh, Bonato sort of explained how how this all works uh, and and kept them within the rules. Uh, however. Here's the funny thing. So these are engine upgrades, right? But the engine upgrades uh, Bonato is promising, he admits, they're not going to be there until after Monza. So 
is this Ferrari kind of low-key copying the fact, like, it's kind of, on the one end, an exciting announcement. Yay, we're bringing out an upgraded engine. On the other hand, you're bringing out the upgraded engine after the fastest circuits on the F1 calendar have come and gone. Spa, which we have this week, is a really fast circuit. Monza, you you need a killer engine uh, to be competitive at Monza. And with Ferrari's timetable, their new components are hitting after that race. And so it does kind of feel like, you know, a, more power is always useful. It, you know, you can always do something with more power. But I can't help but feel like... This is showing up like this is a bit another case of like it's for closing the barn door uh, after the horses have bolted. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I got to believe they would have wanted that upgrade to be there. So um, I imagine this is just, you know, slow down somewhere and we, we get it when we get it. Yeah. But yeah. Speaking of spa, however. You want to take it to the track walk, Rob? Yeah. Uh, so Spa is <laughs> Spa is generally one of my favorite uh, tracks on the F1 calendar. I will say I feel like the last two years I've come into this being like, get ready for some great racing. And there has not been great racing uh, mm-hmm. at Spa. Like, I think it's we've had a little bit of a dry spell uh, for for great Spa races of late. Um, however, it is still just a circuit well set up for great racing. Uh, Spa is, in some ways, maybe the most old school uh, circuit still on the F1 calendar. It is. It dates back to sort of the earliest days of uh, motorsport. It was designed mostly uh, by enthusiasts to be like an exciting, fast showcase for uh, developing cars and motorcycles uh, in, in the earliest days. So... Uh, cars began racing at Spa in 1922. The circuit was 15 kilometers long, and it cut this huge uh, loop through the Ardan Forest, and multiple villages were sort of contained within it. Uh, the design was tweaked for uh, just a little bit for an even faster. Basically, they, they there were some dramatic like turns uh, in the original layout, and they just decided, what if instead of that? really dangerous kinks instead of full turns. Uh, we cut it down to 14 kilometers and just go like hell. Uh, so it was a 14 kilometer circuit through the Ardan forest, uh, for much of its history after world war II. Um, if you want to see what the old circuit was like, um, check out a movie. We did a Patreon, uh, the, uh, Patreon show on Grand Prix. Uh, that is great footage of what the old spa race circuit was like, but basically old spa was, uh, country roads and like Ardan villages um, with just blindingly fast uh, low downforce race cars uh, rocketing along them. Spectators and trees crowding the road uh, everywhere you went. Occasionally a hay bale would be positioned as a concession to safety. Um, you know, <laughs> often just that's just more uh, ignitable material in the case of an accident. And the other thing is, 15 kilometer loop. You know, you can imagine um, they didn't have they didn't have car radios back then. There was no race director with instant information about what's happening uh, all over the circuit. So, uh, if you got in an accident somewhere on the backside of the track, you were seven, eight clicks away from anyone knowing what had happened to you. And sometime later, people might notice your car hadn't been around in a bit and start to realize like you were in distress somewhere. So like the rescue and recovery uh, aspects of spa were also incredibly dangerous. And 
the results kind of speak for themselves. This was a circuit where uh, drivers and spectators died on the regular, uh, mechanics as well in, in, in some cases. And in a way, like Spa was such a bad racetrack, uh, and from a safety standpoint, it ended up being a catalyst for positive change. Uh, in 1969, uh, F1 drivers actually boycotted uh, the race because it had been so such a bloodbath in the previous years. Uh, in 1971, they were supposed to uh, have made some safety upgrades to the circuit. The uh, organizers hadn't achieved that. The race was canceled, and F1 left. It didn't come back until 1983 when they started racing on uh, roughly what is the modern layout. And so out of that big 15-kilometer loop, the modern 7-kilometer loop takes the first sector largely intact. And then you come to a corner called Lacombe, and it used to be Lacombe would sort of open up into the broad loop. Now the track sort of turns back on itself and cuts through uh, the interior of the old layout, and it rejoins the old layout uh, basically on a sweeping bend leading to one of its other iconic uh, you know, old corners, uh, Blanchemont. So the old circuit, the, the new circuit still has a lot of the same iconic places uh, as the old circuit. It also still has a Stavolo uh, corner, uh, it's a different Stavolo. It still marks the outer turn of of the track, um, but it is no longer the, the 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 far the distant one on the old 15 kilometer loop. So they've they've shortened it. Uh, they've also made a lot of safety upgrades to make it uh, you know bring it up to modern standards uh, and make it less deadly. Um, so the this is a this is a fast track. It does reward a lot of raw power. Um, there are a lot of flat out or near flat out sections and there aren't a lot of slow corners except for the one right at the start of the race. Uh, it opens on one of the nastiest hairpin on the track, but maybe one of the nastiest hairpins in F1. Um, it is mm-hmm. such a steep angle. It comes almost like a point. Uh, if you look at the, the track layout, um, and this is where you start the, you, you start on the grid and you have this really quick rundown to the, uh, La Source hairpin. And if you want to get a sense of like, well, what does the FIA worry about happening here? Uh, There is a runoff area that is three times the size of the corner itself, basically. (laughs) Um, And then there are like deep tire barriers uh, throughout uh, throughout the corner. Uh, That said, it's still a a really good place to have uh, just absolute shit shows unfold. Uh, In 2018, Nico Hulkenberg was near the uh, back of the grid. Um, he came in way too hot at, uh, at La Source because if you're from, if you're at the back of the grid, it looks like you're driving into a traffic jam. It's like, like the, the field just stops to get around this corner. Uh, Hulkenberg came in way too hot and, uh, hit Alonzo in a McLaren, uh, in the back and just launched him, uh, into the air. And he went rocketing over the top of, uh, Charles, Charles, Charles uh, Alfa Romeo, um, and there's there's a lot of there've been a lot of uh, incidents around La Source. 1998, uh, David Coulthard triggered just an absolute uh, <laughs> like field wiping crash uh, on the yeah. exit to La Source that came on the on the old the old start finish straight. Um, he got a wheel wrong on a metal grate, lost the car, um, and since he was near the front, when he lost the car everyone just piled into the debris field he caused 
uh, it red flagged the race and caused four retirements, but that's deceptive. If you look, almost every driver in the field was involved in the accident. The only reason they had so many cars on the restart was because back in 1998, F1 F1 teams were allowed a third car uh, to bring with them to races so that if shit like this happened or if you lost a car in practice, you could just move everything to the spare um, rather than do what they do now, which is make your crew work all night to try to cobble your car back together. Uh, So in 1998, you could just jump to your spare. Um, It looks like 13 of the 22 cars took damage. Yeah, it's it is a complete uh, like you almost hear the clown music uh, playing. And it wasn't entirely Coulthard's fault. It was a wet start. Uh, Conditions were bad. Uh, People were driving in dense spray. Uh, But yeah, it was it was a very quick uh, disastrous start to the race. Funny thing about 19, uh, 1998, Coulthard later took out Schumacher uh, in that race, um, again under like iffy circumstances, and Schumacher apparently confronted him in the pits and accused Coulthard of trying to kill them both. Uh, so, uh, memorable, memorable racetrack that uh, <laughs> leads to a lot of tension and uh, sharp tempers. So you get around the source and you head down the old or the alternate start finish straight to the Eau Rouge uh, Radion Chicane. This might be the most famous corner complex in F1 alongside like maybe Parabolica at Monza. Um, It's a scary, steep uphill climb. You can take it flat out in the modern cars. Um, Back in the day, the cars would actually jump a bit at the end at the top of the uh, corner. And uh, they'd come whacking down on their suspension uh, really dramatically. Um, it isn't as hard as it used to be. Uh, the modern cars can can handle it uh, very well um, and can take it pretty much flat. The issue is that it doesn't feel good um, because of the rapid left-right uh, turn you're making while the uh, elevation of the track is... In getting incredibly steep the entire thing feels very counterintuitive apparently like drivers to them it feels like the car is losing control uh as you go through this and it's one of those things where you just kind of have to trust your process and trust the car uh to take it at speed and you have to take it at speed because after Rat- uh, on you're on the Kemmel straight which is the longest straight on the circuit it is the first DRS zone and probably your best overtaking uh, opportunity here. So, like, this is a corner you absolutely have to get right uh, if you're going to have a good lap. It is also, having said that you can take it fast and that it is not quite as, uh, you know, awful as it appears, it was the scene of the most awful incident in recent, F- uh, you know, Formula Racing history, 2019. This is where Antoine Hubert was killed uh, at the top of Radion as he was trying to evade uh, an incident ahead of him. Remember, it's blind. He was sort of taken by surprise. Um, He ended up being spun sideways in the runoff area, was broadsided by Juan Manuel Correa uh, at the start of their F2 race, and uh, was unfortunately killed. Uh, The incident highlighted lingering safety issues with that corner. Uh, It also highlights the limitations and what they can do to ease those. Uh, The issue with this complex is that the things that make it dramatic uh, are also the things that make it hard to fix. Uh, Radion, the runoff area is basically as big as it can be because 
to the right of that, the track falls away pretty much down a cliff. Um, so you can't really add more runoff, which would be the obvious thing to do. Uh, so either you'd have to reconsider the entire corner complex and basically scrap it, um, or you you would have to do some extensive like <laughs> uh, like geo hacking of the of the race circuit that is that is not exactly easy. So uh, the Hubert incident, I think, by and large, right now is regarded as a tragic uh but extremely low probability accident they made some tweaks um and the safety record of the circuit has been pretty good in recent years um but it is one of those things where it is it has raised a lot of questions that have not been answered about uh the advisability of uh erosion and uh radio um also a weird aside um, regarding track layout and the management of uh, Spa Francochamps, um, the CEO of the circuit was killed in a double murder suicide um, a few weeks ago, and she was overseeing uh, a lot of upgrades and renovations to the circuit uh, that were both some facilities upgrades and also some uh, major. Uh, safety upgrades. Uh, it was an $80 million project. Um, and she was uh, tragically killed apparently by her husband uh, in a murder suicide. Um, going back to the surface. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like, it's a bizarre story. Um, that's yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, again, I, I'm not sure what signifies. This is a, um, obviously it's a, it's a tragic, uh, incident and also it is an event that comes at a very awkward moment for the circuit itself like she was overseeing major uh like changes for the future for this for this track um and we'll, we'll see how they move on from from that and how they end up having to adapt to this in the future um so the chemical straight drs zone very fast um, it feels like you're going straight forever uh, down Kemmel. It ends with a trio of fast 90-degree turns. You go through the uh, Lacombe chicane, and then uh, you go right through uh, Malmedy, and this is where you're sort of turning onto the uh, new parts of the circuit. You also begin descending uh, the hillside uh, pretty quickly through here. So you begin, you, 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 the Kemmel's kind of on the highest part of the track around this plateau, and then you are descending rapidly uh, through these corners and you are, you go plummeting toward, uh, uh, Bruxelles, uh, AKA Rivage, uh, hairpin. It's a 180, 180 degree turn. It's not like really that tight a hairpin, uh, but it is a right-hander that just keeps going. Uh, and it's, it's tricky to get right because you're immediately let out into a left-hander, um, turn nine on the F1 circuit map, uh, turn 11 by some other people's counts. You have to get this stuff right because from here, the track begins picking up speed dramatically. And this is one of the, this might be where the identity of the old circuit is most intact. The wrap on old spa was that it was incredibly fast and also demanded incredible concentration because of the way one fast corner would flow to a straight and then to another fast corner, um, the nature of you know racing is that get one part wrong, 
the next part will be wrong. And you will continue to bleed time if you get one thing just a little bit wrong. That really starts here uh, as you begin having to negotiate this series of uh, short straights, flat out sections, and then fast corners. Uh, it demands a lot of a lot of focus as you come out of uh, nine and you approach the double apex puha, uh, aka double gauche, and it is a fast but deceptive corner. Um, it has a fast looking approach, but it is a double apex corner, and so it ends up being a slower and sharper turn than it feels like. Uh, and if you have to correct midway through, again, you will dump a lot of time. Uh, and you really don't want that because you're going to emerge again onto a fast straight, uh, leading to another uh, fast like right-left combo. At that point, you're down at the lowest part of the track, Stavolo. Um, you have to you go, you go through a couple quick rights, and then you're into the like the long sweeping flat-out section through Curb Paul Frere, and probably. The trickiest turn on the on the circuit, maybe uh, the fast left at Blanchemont, which does not seem like you can take it as fast as you can. Uh, it is a it is a pretty like angle wise, it's it's almost ninety degrees. It's a very fast turn, um, but you can take it uh, flat or near flat. Um, it just doesn't feel like you can. And if you haven't gotten the approach right, you probably can't. So. Uh, it, it really doesn't give you much margin for error, uh, despite the generous runoffs that they're all around there. Um, you you want to get that right as well, because once you're through Blanchemont, you are heading to the DRS detection zone uh, that happens right before the bus stop chicane uh, that brings you to almost a dead stop after all this fast driving and turns you back onto the start-finish straight and the final DRS zone heading into the source. Wow. That's a lot. It's a long it's circuit. A, and it's, it's, yeah, and it's like so many of these corners are um, iconic. You know, Lasaurus, of course, uh, the, 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 the first turn before so much chaos happens is also that place where Roman Grosjean cartwheeled over a bunch of people. Um, Eau Rouge, the straight, uh, the chicane, you know, if there's one course... This kind of like one of these countryside courses that you can pick out a bunch of spots. At least I can. Um, a lot of them sort of run together to me, but th- but this one is like okay, that's I know that spa, um, and for for that reason, it's it is also one of my favorites. It, it again, like you said, Rob, doesn't always recently hasn't always led to to good races, but um, that might change. That might be different this weekend because at least right now the weather forecast looks to be kind of crazy uh low temps on qualifying day we're looking at uh 59 fahrenheit or 15 celsius um with winds at uh eight miles an hour or 13 kilometers an hour that's not so crazy but the precipitation for qualifying time uh 82 percent and on race day it looks to start around 78 and taper off from there. But the Arden for like where this track is, is really, it's one of those like weird microclimate areas where uh, it's not like you can really predict, even if you've got like a weather front coming at you, it, the, the, the terrain around the circuit just wreaks havoc with, with weather forecasts too. So it may be, it may be totally dry. It may be a torrent. So um, we don't really know, but this bodes well for uh, chaos. I would say. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think I would. I would argue like the reason maybe the last few 
uh, Spa Grand Prix have not been exciting because for a lot of those seasons, F1 was not always at the most exciting. Like you usually relied on something unexpected happening uh, to throw a curveball in there. Now, yeah, if we're poised for iffy weather, uh, but even without that, it's a more competitive season in F1 uh, than it's been in ages. You know, the 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 Ferrari, the dominant uh, for, like Mercedes power advantage that they had, that appears to be mostly a thing of the past. So anything could happen here. Yes, indeed. And anything can happen in the driver championship. Um, This is the other thing that I think is making this season a lot more exciting. Lewis Hamilton is on top currently with 195 points, but Max Verstappen is only eight points behind with 187 in second place. Lando Norris is in third with 113 to Valtteri Bottas' 108 and Sergio Perez's 104. He's in fifth place. Uh, Behind them, Carlos Sainz has 83. Charles Leclerc, his teammate, with 80. Pierre Gasly and Daniel Ricciardo are tied for 8th place with 50 points. And Esteban Ocon in 10th has 39. Fernando Alonso, his teammate, with 38. Sebastian Vettel's got 30. Yuki Tsunoda and Lance Stroll both have 18. And in 15th place, Nicholas Latifi with 6 in his Williams. Right behind him, George Russell with 4 points. Kimi Raikkonen in 17th place has 2 points. Antonio Giovinazzi has 1. And the only ones with 0 are Nick, uh, Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin. In the constructor standings, Mercedes is on top with 303 to Red Bull's 291. Uh, Ferrari has 163, tied with McLaren for third place. Uh, Alpine's in fifth with 77 points. Alfa Tauri has 68. Aston Martin has 48. Williams has 10 points. Alfa Romeo has three. And Haas has zero. Uh, if you'd like to get in on your own championship, we have the Shift F1 Fantasy League, which you can join using the link in the show notes. Um, and if you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails if you want to use a web form. Uh, we have a smattering of emails here. First from Doug in Tokyo, who says, Dear Drew, Danny, and Rob, I'm here to answer the call for some circuit corner and section names. This is more of a list of favorites and fun trivia, more than the exhaustive list Danny was asking for, uh, but there's only so much time in the day. So yes, we were talking about uh, like how many names of corners are there per circuit, Not because not, not every corner has a name, how do they get names, what are some weird ones. Uh, Doug here is here to, uh, to school us. Spa, as we were just talking about, uh, is the only, only has one corner or section without a name, the tricky downhill left-hander in Sector 2 that sets up the high-speed double apex left of the gauches. Uh, number two, I think it was mentioned earlier this year, but the Nürburgring dedicated the first left-hander on the Nordschleife to Sabina Schmitz after her passing earlier this year, uh, but that makes it only three people who have corners named after them on the ring, which is something because that circuit is gigantic. Uh, there's a Schumacher S on the old Grand Prix circuit, uh, the Schmitz Corner, and Hedvigshua, which is named after the wife of Otto Kreutz, who was important in the building of the ring. By the way, there's apparently some construction happening early this morning in my building, if you are picking that up on my mic. Uh, Doug continues, Jerez, which hosted F1 long ago, uh, F1 testing when that was more common and MotoGP now has a corner called Dry Sack 
The Okoyama International Circuit, formerly TI Circuit Aida, which hosted two F1 races in the 1990s, has corners named after famous British racers, including one David Hobbs, who used to do uh, commentary for the NBC Sports Network back when uh, they covered F1. The Phillip Island Circuit in Australia has a corner named Siberia because it's supposedly the coldest spot on the circuit for the Marshalls. Oh, that is perfect. <laughs> I think that is it's also like very near the coast. So I wonder if it's just picking up, you know, ocean wind. Uh, and finally, the Utah Motorsports Campus. I have no idea what that even is, uh, but Doug says it's a good example of trying too hard to name all the corners in a non-organic manner. I, I, oh my I'm with God. you, Doug. I, I tend to prefer when uh, you start with none and then you add them based on things that happen or like, you know, if they're inspired by other this things. But so much. Yeah, there are. Number one, a lot of corners here. Uh, what is that? Like 25? And they all have oh my not God. the greatest names. There's We've got Demon, Devil, and Diablo is one complex. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't. Indecision and Precision. Oh, God. There's one called Fast, and the one after it is called Faster. This is good. Uh, gotcha leading to maybe I'll make it. <laughs> Followed by agony and so ecstasy. This is, this is the most video game ass thing where like they're trying to create a narrative of the lap through the corner names. Um, it's a lot, man. I don't know. <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll link that in the show notes too. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are, what are some track name corners that stand out to you, Rob? Oh gosh. Um, I like the sound of Eau Rouge as it rolls off the tongue. I also like how in Monaco, um, you know, this, the hallowed grounds of Monaco, they just name stuff like swimming pool. Cause it's near a swimming pool. Rathcast casino. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah I, I like, I think Monaco, you do great with games I, with names. I think, uh, mentioned it already, but like in turn, the most purely like does what it says on the box parabolica uh is just absolutely <laughs> like yes it is like what what is the defining feature of monza parabolica what are you going to have to negotiate at the end of the lap parabolica period <laughs> done it's a wrap yeah i do like 130r oh, at suzuka great. which is just yes number one sounds like a sounds like a um a mech but also I think it's just like it's 130R because that's the degrees of yeah. radius that that turn yeah, is. Yeah, because it's a test track. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that stuff. Uh, you want to take this next one from Sean? Yeah, Sean writes in, Hey, dude, has been listening since the Alt F1 days and had a question after the Hungarian GP. When the safety car came out, basically everyone's engineer on team radio said, keep the delta positive. What exactly does this mean? P.S. I watched some interviews with Yuki Tsunoda and he surmises that his potty mouth on track comes from his experiences as a gamer. He regularly plays Call of Duty Warzone and Apex Legends and from browsing his stream highlights, he's just as angry there as he is on track. Thought you might guys find that, that guy, you guys might find that tidbit amusing. I do. Uh, <laughs> oh, now he makes a lot of sense. Like he's just, uh, you know, the, the gamer, the gamer uh, rage is, comes tumbling out of him. I uh, hope it doesn't uh, lead to any unfortunate turns. Um, so <laughs> keep the delta positive. Um, it's actually less important when the safety car is out and it's gathered up the field. Doesn't matter. The the uh, the safety car is going to set the pace. The delta 
is the delta meaning the change the differential uh from your race at uh, you from your lap at race pace versus your lap under the virtual safety car when the when the full course yellow is out and before the safety car has gathered up the field into a procession in order to sort of stabilize the field and stabilize uh position they want to make sure that everyone is slowing down but not necessarily changing relative position on the track. And so you are obliged to slow down by a certain percentage. I think it's like, uh, got like 30% um, in terms of like overall lap time, which means you need a positive. You need to look at your, your sector times coming in and see that you are uh, the value is positive, i.e. that you are running much slower uh, around the track. Um, I feel yeah, like, so it- my, my understanding is, in, so yeah, like you said, Rob, instead of having like, all right, virtual safety car, everyone go 50 miles an hour or like a speed limit. Instead, they have a uh, minimum lap time. So like, I guess on their dashboard, it'll say like virtual safety card, uh, two minutes, 30 seconds. And so if you are plus, if you have a plus delta, that means the the difference between that two minutes, 30 seconds and your lap time is positive so you're doing more than two minutes 30 seconds and therefore within the rules i also feel like they're much more aggressive now about because i think they're trying for more dramatic restarts i feel like they've gotten away from what they're doing a few years ago which is just having the vsc hold the field in position for a few laps while everything gets cleared up and now the vsc mostly seems to transition into a full safety car so that everyone can gather up the back markers can unlap themselves and then you can have them, uh, you know, go hard. Um, the VSC approach might've been more fair in terms of like preserving good races for people. Uh, but in terms of spectacle, uh, it sure is more fun having these guys quickly close back up, uh, and, and start again together. Yeah. I, I think also the, there's like a hair's breadth between what causes a, vsc to come out and what causes a full safety car to come out i mean there are certainly occasions when you would only do a vsc but if you're gonna do if you're gonna do a safety car if something happens where a safety car is mandated the vsc comes first typically because that's so much easier for the race director to just like you know pull the lever on that and say like well we don't really know what's going on virtual safety car everybody slow down um but yeah hope that helps sean from san francisco uh, and finally, we have an email here from Anonymous McAnon Face, uh, who claims to be a uh, someone who works in Formula E. So says Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous McAnon Face. Hi, Drew, Danny, and Rob. In the British GP pre-race show, you discussed Bernie Eccleston's infamous idea to use sprinklers to artificially wet the track during a race. Uh, Danny's suggestion of a Twitter poll to, quote, decide when turn three gets a spray down reminded me of a very similar suggestion that was mooted behind the scenes in another racing series. I've worked in Formula E for a while, and a few years ago I was told that the powers that be were considering a fan boost style system to decide when the track should be artificially moistened. Uh, If you have not watched Formula E, they had this thing called fan boost, where uh you get to vote for your favorite driver ahead of the race and if that driver wins uh they get a boost during the race it's a little um fan engagement thing they have going on uh the proposed name for this new fan engagement exercise with the uh, concerning the water 
Fan Splash, or possibly Fan E Splash. I swear I'm not making this up. Uh, another element that was apparently on the table when the Generation 2 cars were introduced was an energy sapping system that a driver could use to slow down his Incredible. rivals. I don't know the specifics, but I heard it described tractor as a tractor beam, beam <laughs> that would limit another car's power for a period of time. Would you guys like to see Formula E go full Mario Kart with crazy power-ups, fan votes, and rubber banding? How far is too far? Uh, is there any way a blue shell could work in a real-life motor race? Uh, love the show, but please do not re reveal my name in case Alejandro Agag sends his goons to break my legs. So, ultimately... Uh, there's a few things. Okay. Ultimately, <laughs> I think the only way to present this stuff is with like some significant uh ar presentation uh augmented yeah. reality and but and also probably helps if you can project that to the drivers as well so that you have the full like the 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 hud basically that they're getting is showing the same stuff taking effect and provide some feedback because otherwise i think it's just profoundly weird if the drivers are racing what appears to be a pretty straightforward race, but then secretly like tractor beam has activated and someone's car is losing pace. Uh, I think the real obstacle with this stuff is um, it's a real short run between something being cool and novel and seeming cheap and gimmicky. Like, mm -hmm. I think it, you don't have to do very much before something starts to feel like, um, uh, like holy moly, uh, the, uh, mini golf, uh, golfing game that's, uh, Steph Curry produces, or it starts to feel like, um, drone re drone league racing, which are like these entire, like led neon lit, um, you know, circus like obstacle courses that look very cool but also don't feel serious and also are kind of busy to look at. I, I think Formula E, like, I think these are fun, goofy ideas. Um, but genuinely, I think what you'd end up with is you're trying to, you're trying to come across like F-Zero, but actually you will come across like Ninja Warrior. Yeah, or even... <laughs> maybe the uh the animation of the racing baseball helmets on the jumbotron yeah. right where it's all kind of yes it doesn't yes. it doesn't really matter what the drivers do like that's kind of where i get a, a, afraid i do think the fan splash or fanny splash um for me stays within the realm of like of acceptability because you are you're throwing a a wrench in that the drivers will have to deal with with their driver skill the tractor beam does not take any skill right it is a completely artificial thing um that like yes it it it, it introduces a strategic element to it a lot like um uh attack mode does so formula e also has this thing where there is a zone on the track and they do use ar for this yeah um at least for the the viewers is a zone on track that looks like an f-zero like recharge uh zone that if you drive through it you get a uh a, a temporary boost and in fact you must drive through it two times per race uh you get to choose when you do that um and e so even that i would say 
you know, again, is strategic, but like it doesn't, it gives your car more power, but it doesn't really have much to do with the driver skill yeah. necessarily. Uh, you know, unlike, you know, surprise, you have to contend with turn three being wet. So, Fan uh, Splash is a great yeah. game, though. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your emails. Again, you can email us at uh, shiftf1podcast at gmail.com uh, or f1.cool slash emails. You can also hit us up on Twitter at shiftf1podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. That's us around the internet. Now it's time to race around the world. We have uh, a lot of racing. Uh, the there has been a lot of racing going on. Uh, the I know uh, 24 hours of Le Mans happened. Um, I didn't catch much of it, but apparently uh, the uh, some of the finishes in the uh, different classes came down to uh, some pretty close ones. Um, the NASCAR Xfinity Series is at the Daytona International Speedway for the Wawa 250. Wawa. Uh, the uh, Extreme E racing series the that's the electric off-road series their third round uh the arctic x pre is taking place this weekend in greenland uh formula three will be supporting formula one in spa for two races there uh the w series is also back for the spa round um if you again if you want to go learn about what that's all about you can go back one episode and listen to our w series uh, not a primer. Uh, MotoGP is racing in uh, Silverstone for the British Grand Prix. Super Formula is at Twin Ring Motegi in the town of Motegi, Haga District, Tochigi Prefecture. And we got NASCAR. They're also at the Daytona International Speedway for the Coke Zero Sugar. 400 love it I gotta gotta stay sugar free yeah yep uh and formula one maybe you've heard of it the belgian grand prix kicks off friday august 22nd 7th at uh 5 30 a.m eastern time on espn 2 followed by free practice 2 at 9 a.m on espn u uh, Saturday, August 28th, free practice three is at 6 a.m. Eastern time on ESPN2, followed by qualifying at 9 a.m. Also on ESPN2. And finally, the race, Sunday, August 29th, at 9 a.m. Eastern time on ESPN2, the deuce. Rob, we're back to racing. I am very happy to, that we're starting off with Spa again. I am looking forward to it. Um... I enjoyed the break, not gonna lie. Breaks are fun. Uh, but if we are back to great racing and uh, we're back to this incredible state of play uh, we've got, I for one am praying that Max and Lewis are starting real close on that run to the source. Because um, I think I think we are two for two uh, lately with just disastrous nightmare starts that have the most hilarious uh, like overstayed impacts on the championship. I think it's spot like given that record like I feel like it's in the stars that something wild is going to happen at spa yeah agree um, very much looking forward to it if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official discord 
you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. <laughs>